welcome to another episode of Behind the Media. I'm your host, Juliana Martins, and this conversation is a super informative one and extremely trending in today's new world. I'm sitting down with Playboy Enterprise's very own Vice President of Content Marketing and Blockchain Innovation, Jamal Dowda. He shares about his background in the music industry, how he got to where he is now, and then deep dives into all the new stuff Playboy is tackling. If you don't know what an NFT is before starting this episode, let me tell you, Jamal does an incredible job of explaining NFTs and tons of other concepts that are only becoming more relevant. I'll stop talking now and let the professional take things away. So hello, everybody. Welcome to Behind the Media. I'm your host, Juliana Martins, and we are here. I'm really excited about this guest with Jamal Dowda. Yeah. Yeah. Hi. Hi, friend. (laughs) And he hello, friend. He is the vice president of content marketing and blockchain innovation at Playboy Enterprises. (laughs) How are you? How are you? I'm so good. How are you? I'm fantastic. I a little I feel like I'm eternally tired, but I'm feeling I'm feeling good. I'm excited to be hanging out with you. I'm so excited too. We were hanging out what last week. Uh Jamal was in town for some Playboy shenanigans. We'll get into that. It was a really exciting launch and that was freaking nuts, but a really fun week. We'll get <laughs> we'll get into that. We'll get into that. Yeah. But Jamal has had just like such an awesome career. We met when did we meet? We met, I guess, in the summer in LA. And yeah, that sounds right. right. Was yeah, it the yeah. summer? Yeah, that's about right. And like, I just keep learning so many more fascinating things and like bits and pieces <laughs> of your life that I'm like, wait, what? Like, that's like, like you've had so many lifetime careers in <laughs> like a, a a small window of your life. You're saying I'm old. That is I'm what you're saying. I'm not saying you're old. I never. I, I said small that's window. Like, I didn't say large window. I said small I feel- window. Feels like it. No, no, no. Yeah, I've been, I, well, we'll talk about it, I guess, but I, I seem to not be able to, to settle. Like I, I was, I was going through it and I was actually, someone made a comment on like my LinkedIn or something. And I was like, oh my God, I didn't even think about how many different things I've done at this point. Things that aren't even on there either. So I was like, yeah, it's been a, and they're all very different and weird. Like none of them seem to fit to most people. But, but they're all so yeah. awesome. Like you, you started your early career in the music industry and artist management, right? Like what, yeah. what'd you do there? Oh God. Well, even before management, I, when I first got out of school, I went to school at UC San Diego and I went into college thinking I was going to be a lawyer. Uh, <laughs> I was this, like, this is another new thing I'm learning. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, I, I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be an entertainment lawyer. I'm going to just be this like power broker in in music. It's going to be amazing. And then I got onto the like the programming and booking board in college, and I was like, nope, just kidding. Like, I love booking shows, and this is all I want to do for like the rest of my life. And I like hard. I you know was still taking like communications and political science classes and stuff, but out of school. All I looked for was music jobs, much to the depression of my parents. (laughs) And the time there was a new House of Blues being built and um, they were looking for like an assistant to the talent buyer, basically like head booker there and super lucky, just was like interning in radio at the time and doing some other stuff and was able to, to snag that job. And it was just like off to the races from there. And I was there for years, booking shows at the club, booking shows kind of all over San Diego, really learning the live event side. 
And then it just being, you know, two hours away from LA, I was like, well, if I'm going to keep doing music, it just makes sense to like get back to LA. Yeah. Um, Cause I grew up closer to LA and I just was like, you know what, let's just go do this. And then that's when it got real wild. I just started doing like every job you could imagine. I was like working for a small record label. I was like just helping out in studios. I just wanted to learn everything. So I did a ton of that until finally a couple people kind of in the electronic music space were like, hey, have you ever thought about management? Like, it seems like your brain would be really good to like manage and and take a bunch of skills in and, and do a bunch of stuff at the same time. So I went into music management, right? When like this sort of crazy electronic music boom was happening in the, in the U S and we were off to the races from there. And then from, for there, I did music management for a huge chunk of my career until I started moving into to brand marketing and other stuff, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But yeah, music management, I touched like everything in music, literally from like cleaning a studio to like being an assistant to like day-to-day managing to managing to all of, you know, it was, it's the whole journey. Yeah. Well, who are some of the artists that you managed? Yeah. So I... And you were at Capitol, right? Capitol Records? Yeah. So, well, yeah. So through... So on the management side, um, we I was at a company called Undocumented Management, and we had this crazy roster that these artists, Mastercraft, this producer Wolfgang Gartner, Kid Felix Cartel. I started moving into more of like the band space because I just like, lo- I always grew up as like an indie rock kid. So um, managed this amazing, super talented artist named Oberhofer, this band from LA called IO Echo. And then our management company kind of, sort of like partnered with a few other management companies and I was able to work on things kind of across the roster. And so um, one of one of my mentors, same Simon, manages Phoenix, Block Party, a ton of bands that like I was super into, mm-hmm. Death From Above, which one of the members was also in Mastercraft who were managing, came back together during my tenure there. So got to work on like that amazing kind of like reunion and campaign. And they're still going strong and just released an album, I think a few months ago. Um, oh, wow. so yeah, so it's been, it was a, it was a ton of different, it was a weird mix of like electronic producers and rock bands and yeah, some other stuff along the way. <laughs> what do you have? Like a story that sticks out from your time working in music and artist management that you're like, what on earth was that? Like, this is the wildest story. <laughs> like just anything just like crazy that you can, you can give us. Oh God. Uh, without getting anyone in trouble. Huh? Don't get anyone in trouble. That is not what we do <laughs> on behind the media. I think, no, I don't know. There's so many, honestly, that was like the whole thing was a crazy, crazy, crazy ride. But I think one of the craziest things that stuck out to me was I was a, always a fan of electronic music, but I, I wouldn't say it was like the scene that I was like first and foremost into when I was younger. And so as I was working with those artists, I was learning a lot more about the scene and the culture and, and where it was moving to in real time. And at that time, there was a crazy boom happening. So, so much money was coming into the space that hadn't been in there in like a long time. A lot of major labels were trying to sign artists. Huge festivals were popping up. And, you know, one of them being, you know, EDC, Electric Daisy Carnival, which had been around for a while. But when I was kind of in the kind of height of my management stuff, they started, you know, they were, they started doing them in Vegas mm-hmm. and just the combination of like a hundred thousand people there for like a music festival in Vegas out at like the motor speedway was just like chaos to me. Everything was like so decadent. Like 
People were taking helicopters from their hotels to the festival. You would be, you know, the thing didn't end till like 6 a.m., 7 a.m. in the morning. And so you'd see these kids like just partying their faces off until like all the way to sunrise, then like somehow find their way home and then be at a pool party at 11. And you'd see like the same people and you're just like, what is, what is happening right now? <laughs> like, oh my God, it was just, oh my God. I, yeah. And that, and that festival was where if you could name a thing, like, I think I, I saw it. It was just like nuts. It was, it was the most like intense thing. And we did, I remember doing a couple of years of that because we had artists playing and stuff and we were working really closely with that festival on, um, programming a stage and i just think that whole experience was like every all the like it was amazing and it was great and it was like an incredible community and i still have like a ton of friends from like those days but that festival in particular is not like i've been to a lot of music festivals and it's just so much different <laughs> like, not like anything else chaos just chaos so how did you get from the music industry to working at playboy yeah oh wow i know there was like some time in between there but yeah, yeah i guess like what what led you there? Yeah, no, I think the the big thing was like the transition from music into, I guess, what I would say is like more brand marketing and culture marketing, and then eventually like content marketing. And like, by and large, it came down to like, I, I really loved music management, and I loved the music industry. And I got into it because I think like, like most people do, I think with the best intentions and like, being fans of music. For me, I just started, you know, at the end of the day, as a manager, especially specifically, your job is to be this advocate and the shield and like the tip of the spear for your artist, right? You were there, you were there in service of, of your artist and, and not vice versa. So you really have to like, I found it with, with my personality, it was really all encompassing. And I just was, I felt like I was just sacrificing everything else just to try to be some semblance of a good manager. I also, I felt a little bit limited in that like, in my case, I think, People wanted a very specific thing from me, but I always thought I could do more than that. And I thought I had more creativity in me than maybe just like logistics or, mm -hmm. you know, or, or just sort of like other, other parts of that job. So I wanted an opportunity to take what I had learned in that space, but maybe bring that to companies that were looking to, to do this. And so at the time Red Bull had, you know, had a huge, you know, huge music program and we're pulling in a lot of people in the music space to help them build out a sort of like integrated marketing and like brand partnership program. So I went there, then, you know, went to WeTransfer, who was also doing some really amazing things and, and continues to do amazing things in like the arts in general, music and film and photography and all of this and, and fine art. But then Playboy, <laughs> I would have never guessed in a million years, you know, if I'm being fully honest it wasn't something i like sought out per se or, mm -hmm. or was like looking for but i've always believed that like you you invest in people and i think like good companies are made of like good people and our our chief brand officer and kind of like our one of our presidents over the company Is that rachel, rachel yeah rachel weber uh oh you, you know that's right you met oh yeah 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 it is is really has really become like a um, another sort of mentor for me and also like just like she she was the guiding light you know at first i was like what do you even what is playboy doing what do you need me for i don't understand this <laughs> like and just through a series of like getting to know each other and some dinners and things she just really kind of sold me on this like vision of, of what it could be and what that brand, you know, stood for and what it can do really well in sort of modern times. And that we have this, you know, the, the, the sort of line we always go back to is, you know, now it's almost 68 years, but the idea of being this like, 
you know, 67 year, you know, startup where we have all the brand recognition you could ask for. And people, you know, you, you throw that rabbit head or that, you know, that, that logo up and people know, but, but having that and then having the opportunity to do something new with it and to sort of like take that legacy and, and try different things with it or, or try to sort of, um, you know, reinvigorate it in, in, in certain areas. And yeah. It was a really, it, it, it was, and it continues to be a really interesting challenge. So that's, that's kind of how I, the very, very short version of how I got over there. <laughs> and that's what you are currently doing. So like you said, Playboy has been around for nearly 68 years and you, a, a huge part of your role is innovation. And so you're spearheading a whole new sector for them. You guys just unveiled your NFTs. They're called the Rabbitars. Yes, Playboy so, Rabbitars. <laughs> tell us what is a Rabbitar? What is it? Like, tell us everything. I uh, I know I went to this is okay. So this is why Jamal was in New York a few weeks ago, and he I was also in New York at the same time. I'm back and forth, and he sent me the invite, and this was the coolest party, guys. Pam Anderson showed up, icon. <laughs> it was just the coolest thing ever, and it was to help launch the Rabbitars. So tell us what the Rabbitars are. Yeah, so the the short version, it's it's like a it's an NFT collectible series. It's it's eleven thousand nine hundred and fifty three of these sort of uh, generative art characters that that sort of are again on their face are collectibles. They live in this imaginary world called Leverestia that. Uh, myself and uh, my partner who kind of wrote all of the the mythology out, Liz, created. And, you know, on the one hand, it's that. But at the, the other hand of it, the way that these NFTs and what they represent are for us is like this idea of like a new version of, like you said, like through kind of digital innovation membership, right? Like Playboy's history in terms of sort of hosting, throwing parties, gathering people. It's like exclusive. Yeah, exactly. The 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 Playboy clubs, the Playboy Jazz Festival, all of these different kinds of things were in our DNA. But like what does that look like now, right? What does that mm-hmm. look like in a in a sort of digital modern world where like you're not just sort of tied to like the geography of of one place or a couple places like we're interacting with and we're engaging with through through all kinds of, you know, different layers in our social media and all of these things this crazy global like borderless community so i think it's you know this is our attempt at like really trying to show what from a brand standpoint Mm -hmm. what that can look like and how you can engage with your communities and your you know your your followers and in a way that's like much more engaged and much more two-directional than i think like some more traditional versions of, of social media right now so that's that's kind of what it is in a nutshell, but yeah, it's a it's a whole world, and we're just we're just starting to unveil like what it looks like and what some of the things that people get access to and all of these things. But um, I think the party itself, right, was like exclusive access to people on the invite list, but also the people who did purchase these rabbitars. Yep, that's exactly it. That's uh, that that event we did in New York was super exclusive. Yeah, was was half sort of our collaborators and artists and friends and musicians and just like cool people that we that are sort of in the the Playboy ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other half of spots were just for Rabbitar holders, and that was it. And that's a it's a super good example of the kinds of things that we can and want to do in sort of with IRL events, but also like thinking through what like real life. Yeah. Like digital activations look like what access to apparel and art and like exclusive things just for this community who has bought these, these NFTs. So uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're excited. Yeah. Before we dive in, I have a list. It's called 
WTF is a colon. <laughs> okay. I'm just going to read them off real quick. These okay. each are going to require their own answers. Okay. okay. WTF is a crypto currency. WTF is blockchain. WTF is an NFT and WTF is discord. So let's go back. We were just talking about Rabatars and NFTs. Okay. okay. So let's break that one down. What is an NFT? So I know you said it, it's a digital space. It's a digital yeah. currency. You know, I want to let you take that over. No, no, <laughs> no. Let's, let's talk about, I'm going to, I'll make your life a little bit easier. Let's make let's it like start- NFTs for dummies. <laughs> okay. I'll see what I can do. I won't, I won't nerd out too hard because I know that's not what we want to do. And we're good with analogies here. Okay. I'll do my best. So it's, I think it's good to think about NFTs and currency together, right? Because at the end of the day, they're, they're both in this context, they're both kind of like units of storage of, of information, but what separates them. So a cryptocurrency, like a lot of what, like the tokens and things that you hear about, Mm -hmm. probably the most famous ones being like Bitcoin, Ethereum, you know, maybe Litecoin, if you dive in, you know, other stuff like that. Those are, those are currency in that they are fungible, right? Like, which is to say that what's fungible. Exactly. So fungible in that sense, or in any sense really is, is sort of, is, is, interchangeable, right? One-to-one. The way, so the analogy of that is like the US dollar is fungible. Like $1 equals $1. Like they are, you can like trade the pieces of paper. There is not, there is not more value in a single dollar just because it has like a different serial number or whatever. So instead of like $1 equaling 20 somethings, it's just like (laughs) one equals one. One equals one, right? That's the easiest way to think about like- 20 equals 20, 50 equals 50. Yep, fungibility Fungible. across these these different these units. So it could be coconut shells or it could be dollar bills or in this case it can be sort of digital tokens and identifiers that are like interchangeable in that way. And, and all it means for like cryptocurrency is that again, there's no there aren't these physical representations of them out in the world. So all of the tracking and all of the movement of these is in a, you know, a digital immutable, meaning once it's written into it, you cannot go back and erase it. There's a, Mm -hmm. it's transparent, it's immutable and it's digital. And that, and that in essence is what the blockchain is, right? It is this like ongoing digital ledger that lets you verify every single transaction that has happened on it. The difference is, is that that information isn't stored in like one centralized place the way it would be, or the way that we're used to or one centralized kind of server the way we're used to, right? So I go back to like one of the examples comes up a lot. It's like in banking or in finance, right? Like at the end of the day, if you, I bank at, you know, I'm at Chase, right? So all of the info, all the transactions we have, all of that is at the end of the day, still in one central kind of repository, you know, for for the most part in their like server system. Mm -hmm. And we count on them to keep those servers up, to give us accurate uh, depictions of what's in our account, all of that stuff, right? If for some reason that one source or a large chunk of that source is attacked or goes down or whatever, like we're, we're in bad shape, right? We don't mm-hmm. have a lot of visibility into what was happening or what the right amounts were the day before, other than like, unless you take a screenshot of your bank account every day, which like people don't do. And even then it would be tough. What blockchain allows you to do is it distributes that information across all of these separate people, all of the participants, all of their computers and phones, what we call nodes, and it is constantly creating this like updated ledger that everyone can see the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. So if any one node or any, you know, if my laptop right now fell into the, you know, fell into a bathtub and whatever, it wouldn't 
change the the transparency or information across the Ethereum blockchain or across Bitcoin or whatever because there are thousands and tens of thousands of nodes that are all that all have the same information that updates in real time. Okay. So that's kind of the really 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 simple answer about blockchain, the really really simple answer about cur- cryptocurrency. And it's good to go in that order because then it gets you to NFTs. Okay. And so just to recap before we get into NFTs. So cryptocurrency is a form of currency that is digital and online. And then blockchain is tracking all of that, like all the whole ledger, the yeah, logs exactly. of who has what money, where what funds are where, exactly. just so it's like super visible. Exactly. That's it. And, and and the key the keys of it are that it's decentralized. So it's like spread out across lots of people as opposed to like one central figure, like again, a bank or an institution mm-hmm. or whatever. It's immutable, meaning you can only write on top of it and move forward. It's not something you can go back and, and, and write over and change. Exactly. And like to make changes to a blockchain, you basically have to like split off into a new chain. And then there are moments in history where that's like happened. But basically, it's not like something that you can just like go back and write over and say, oh, never mind, that didn't happen. Like, it's it's very sort of like reliably immutable. And then to that point, it's transparent, right? If you know what you're looking at, you can go to, you know, Etherscan or you can go to a place and see every, trans- you know, if you have certain info, you see every transaction that's happened mm-hmm. in a certain digital wallet or with a project or all of that stuff. So it's super transparent. Those are like the three key, okay. like, things around blockchain. And so it's like super fair, yeah, in that sense. I, exactly. That's 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 it, right? At it, at its best, at its purest, it's very fair. It's very sort of again transparent and visible. You know, obviously having access to it and, and knowledge and technology is is key. But it, it's yeah, it's 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 the step towards sort of really making fair and egalitarian a lot of things that that might not normally. Be. And so now that we we have that out of the way, let's let's discuss like what an NFT is. Right. So if, you know, if fungible, you know, if cryptocurrencies are fungible and again, one to one, right, you can interchange non fungible, exact opposite. Right. It means that's what it stands for. Exactly. Non fungible token. Non fungible token. Exactly. I'm an expert. (laughs) You are an expert. But 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 in the same way that like just just to take a step back and for analogies, things outside of crypto are non-fungible, right? Like art in its essence is non-fungible, right? Like one, that that's why it had, you know, in the fine art world, that's why these pieces like the, you know, the Mona Lisa is, is a one of one, right? Like mm-hmm. you could, now that doesn't mean you could reproduce prints of it. And sure, like you can, everybody can have a poster of the Mona Lisa, but that doesn't mean it is the Mona Lisa. And, and that's an interesting way to think about non-fungible tokens in terms of at least like even in like the art space is a good place to wrap your head around Mm because I'm sure that's where you see a lot of the stories and a lot of people that have come into the space have heard these crazy sales of like, you know, this, you know, digital artist named Beeple selling his work for $69 million, just sold another physical piece for $25 million, all of this kind of stuff. With art, it's the same thing, right? Like what a, at at its core, and and art is only one use, but what a non-fungible token is, is it's sort of just this unique, sort of non-interchangeable unit of data 
that is stored on a digital ledger, aka blockchain, right? Mm-hmm. Which we just went over. So the, the the token and the data is really the token, but you can put any kind of data in there, right? You can put photos, you can put videos, you can put audio, we could do this podcast, like any kinds of sort of digital files. And the token really serves as like a certificate of authenticity, right? Because of the transparency we just talked about, you can trace the complete what you know what they call provenance, the complete journey that that photo or piece of audio or info or house deed or any you know medical record, you can see every place that it has lived on this chain. So whereas like in art, sometimes you know we've heard amazing stories about like you know forgeries or pieces of you know amazing historical art going missing and all of this and a fifty year gap and where these valuable pieces and things kind of would go like with blockchain, it's like, it's all there. You can mm-hmm. see whose hands it's been in, you know, good, bad, or ugly and, and all of that. And so you have this like very, very public, very verifiable proof of ownership, which is, you know, has a lot of implications across so many industries like art, like, you know, gaming, like, you know, place, you know, I mean, clothing, counter, anywhere where there's like sort of questions about what is real and what is not, um, this can come into the play. So people who who try to sort of like, disparaged nfts a lot are always like oh i can just right click save the file and it's like it goes back to that like mona lisa analogy it's like yeah you you could make a copy of this photo but that doesn't mean that you have the actual like token and verifiable photo and rights based on whatever the rights are attached to to that thing so yeah you, you don't you can't restrict copies of it but the lack of sort of interchangeability is what differentiates it from cryptocurrency and then what also starts to allow you to make these markets where just like the art world or other space or collectibles or trading cards or all these Mm -hmm. things you can assign people start to assign their own values and these these new markets have emerged so i have a question like while you were kind of saying that so like let's say there is a picture of marilyn monroe that nobody has ever seen and there's (laughs) only one of these pictures and you make it into an nft upload it whatever it is that you do to put it on the internet. Yep. Yep. You mint it. Yep. And you sell it for millions of dollars. And now that person owns that picture. So does that mean anybody that wants to use that picture, like has to either buy it from you or pay you or like, do you have ownership of like the copyright of that? That's a great question. And it it depends on the rights associated. Like sometimes, and, and these are things that are like happening in real time and people are figuring out, but, but not, it's the people are playing around with this idea a lot, right? Which is to say that like sometimes by having this sort of like NFT digital ownership of the thing does not necessarily always come with like the physical ownership of the got thing. Got it, got it. If, if that makes sense, right? It's a different kind of right and a different kind of usage. And depending on what you're talking about and like who that is, like it's very different, right? So mm-hmm. so some projects they in the in the Marilyn Monroe, well, I guess in the Marilyn Monroe case, if the person says, "Yes, I am selling you the the digital rights to this thing, but also the rights to this physical, everything that comes with it," that's fine. Then cool, yeah. Then in that case, you now become the like central copyright owner and all of those things, and that's one kind of way of doing it. But like another example to think through is like MBA has, you know, the MBA has a huge sort of um, platform for NFTs called Top Shot. And you, you know, you purchase these like collectibles that very much look like kind of trading card packs and you, you collect the, the digital NFTs and they're, they're on this, this blockchain called Flow. And 
now you you own that sort of that moment and this like video moment of this like dunk or this seal or this pass or whatever else, but it doesn't mean you know based on like the rights that they they give you to that like it doesn't mean that you have the right to just go do whatever you want with that clip into perpetuity. Got it. You know there are sort of limited rights to it. So there's all kinds and then there's all kinds of things in between. So again, there, there's okay. a lot of different ways to structure that, and it just depends on what the person's intent is. And then to your point, depending on how much you give to a purchaser or a new owner, it could really affect the the value mm-hmm. of, of that NFT. And so then my follow-up question on the top shot situation is, okay, what does that mean for me? Like, why on earth do I want to own six seconds of this guy throwing a ball <laughs> on a hoop? Like, well, how is that going to make me money? How is that going to be a value to me? Like, why, why, like, why can't I can just go watch it on ESPN rerun? So like, why is this like, what does that mean for me? Yeah, 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 sure. Look, I mean, I, I, I would never dare give anyone financial advice, but I can give you a few sort of theories or ways to think about it. I mean, yeah, the, the store of value and like what makes something valuable in a market it's the same exercise, it, it, you know, in, in the digital space as it is in the physical space, right? There are lots of things in the physical world. Again, fine art is a great example. Luxury goods that get sold for five times the markup, all of these things. Like, you, you know, when you go and buy, like, a Louis Vuitton bag, sure, you're paying for, like, a certain level of craftsmanship and all of that. And it's, you know, it's made out of, better materials than like some random bag you might get on Canal Street or whatever. But at the end of the day, the reason why you're probably playing like three, four or five times that, depending on what size item you're getting, is because like there we have decided that there is like a there's a badge value. There is a a sort of like social marker to having a Louis Vuitton bag. Like that is part of it. So if I take that back to like to Top Shot and to to other kinds of projects, right? I guess, you know, Top Shot specifically, it's no different to me than like trading cards, right? Which is like, why why is there a, ba- you know, why can you sell a Babe Ruth card for $19 million, right? Like, why can you sell a Honus Wagner card for, you know, again, like $26 million like, or whatever? Beanie Babies, like, why the heck are these babies stuffed were a thing. animals? Like, right, that okay. Was a, that, was a por- that was an important thing, right? And they all come down to this question of whether it's imagined or not, this question of like scarcity, right? On some level, these are markets that are that are of our own creation as a society, right? And when enough people have sort of decided that there is this scarcity or there is this scale or is there a weight to how rare or how special something is, it can all of a sudden become a store of value. So like one of the earlier sales of, you know, in Top Shot was this like LeBron James moment that was part of like a special pack special collection and it was like you know part of a mint of i forget what the exact number is but like a really small mint right and someone sold one for you know i think like two hundred thousand dollars it's one of those things that like as this grows and more moments grow and collectibles and tradables and all of this it's like that will continue to be rare and that will continue to be special and that will continue to capture a moment in sports culture in in tech and innovation culture all of these things so like on some level, like it is to say that like the the value is is sort of what the the market decides and in mm-hmm. some way it can be anything and is imaginary in some ways. But that's no different than other places in the in the physical world where we yeah. sort of assign imaginary value to to all kinds of objects. It's not that different. That's so cool. And so to bring this all back to Playboy, 
Like, how did you guys decide to get into this space? And you're, you're really on the forefront of this digital space. Like, I, I mean, I'm not an expert on all of this, but I haven't seen, like, you guys are a huge, massive brand and you're really kind of like leading the space. Do you, do you see that other brands might follow in this direction? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a, like, I mean, I, I'd like to think we're early. We we tried to be early, um, but there's you know there's a handful of other places. You know, Time Magazine's doing some really great stuff, and we we know people on that team really well, and they're they're great. There's brands that are like splashing you know in here and there, but for us, yeah, I, I think it's I think on some level it's inevitable, right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it will necessarily look exactly like what we're seeing now because there's so much to figure out. But I think what people get caught up in is this idea of like the present and how they're seeing it show up in the world and NFTs and these very specific like collectible and art usages. And that's, that's certainly one way. And there's still so much untapped potential for what those can and will do for brands. But I also think it was just like the kind of like old tech, you know, Silicon Valley tech boom of like web two. a lot of companies sort of emerge and a lot of companies fell. And there's a whole graveyard of like a really amazing Mm -hmm. ideas that just like, or too early or too late or all of these things. Ti- timing, Yeah, exactly. Timing is everything. And like, I think we're going to see, there's a lot more, there's a lot more peaks and valleys to be yeah. had, I think in this technology. And that's what everybody has to get ready for is that like, I think, but there's no, there will never not be a good reason to, to learn this stuff, to be ahead of it. Doesn't mean you have to go as like big th- as we did. Like we, you know, we, we really went for it. And, and I really credit like, um, you know, Rachel again and our senior leadership and the people on our sort of like blockchain and crypto team having the bravery to just be like, let's let's like dive in. Like, let's, yeah. you know, let's just go for it and see what happens. People are going to go at their own their own pace. But I think like the, the technology is just like it feels inevitable and it feels kind of like it, it, it's like now. Right. When, when we go to do stuff in, in sort of, I guess, what we call like Web2 when we go online and blah, blah you don't think about every piece of that system, right? All of the different mechanisms and utilities and APIs and all these things that it takes for you to like quick pay, buy a sweatshirt online. Mm -hmm. Blockchain right now, because of how new and how early for a lot of people, for like the average consumer, it's still very clunky, right? You feel every step. People don't know how to set up a digital wallet, how to buy cryptocurrency, how to then, you know, where it's safe to then go get an NFT if they wanted to. Once, you know, we're continuing to like streamline that as an entire industry. And like once that feels more ubiquitous and once like you going to buy an NFT feels as simple as you going to buy a new pair of headphones, that's when we're going to start to see a lot of like scale and traction and, and, and movement. And so that's what we're really excited to be ahead of. And we're going to, you know, like anyone else, we're going to take some hits and we're going to learn and yeah. we're going to keep growing, but we're, we're super committed. We don't, we don't look at it as like this one rabbitar project and that's it. Like this is a fundamental part of, of, of who this, of who we are as brand Playboy identity. And what this, yeah, exactly. And what this business is for us moving forward. And I think we're like just scratching the surface of how this shows up across the company. So it's, ex- it's exciting. That's really exciting. And I feel like, like in the media to go into PR a little bit, I am now coming across, this was not the case a few years ago. I even feel like there are so many editors now that just do cryptocurrency, just do NFTs. And, and so I feel like, like Playboy is getting tons of media attention around this. And that leads me to this question. Playboy has had such longevity as a brand and is still an iconic household name today. Do you think that that can be attributed to its PR and marketing efforts? Yeah, certainly. I mean, you can't <laughs> you can't disconnect it. I mean, you know, Playboy as a brand 
it's again, P- PR has never been the problem uh, yeah, in terms of like getting definitely not <laughs> certainly not the case in terms of, in terms of like getting people's eyeballs and attention on what we're doing. Hef, Hef, uh, Hef was good at that, at getting attention. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and the, and the brand on the whole, I, I, I think like what what we try to focus on and what has always been the the exercise, at least as long as I've been there, is like making sure that we're telling like an authentic story and a fair story, and that like. A lot of the, you know, you of all people, you know, Juliana, you know, you know, it's like making sure that like, at least you have a fair shot at at telling a narrative that's true to what you are trying to say Mm -hmm. versus letting other people tell your story for you. And I think that's the hardest part is like when you've been around for so long and and meant so many things, so many different people, the brand's going to be imbued with so many with with people's own versions and own baggages of, of, you know, good, good, bad or ugly or whatever, you know, of the of the brand. And I think you and it's probably like hard to change that. Like if my mom who's living in Bumble F, Arkansas, like (laughs) what she thinks about Playboy is going to be different than like someone like me, someone like you. So I get that there's like so many different opinions and from this whole 360 approach to like press just like what's out there on playboy from the last nearly 68 years yeah exactly that so so that's why we really uh, you know we we really work on like being future facing right what are we, we we know nor is there any again back to the idea of immutability right we can't go back and change like what's already been written and and what is there and you said certain people's opinions of but what we're finding and what we're really excited about is there are you know newer and newer generations of people that are that are willing to change their opinion or or have always had a positive opinion or mm-hmm. or coming on a new kind of journey with us, you know, have only known us for for one thing or another thing, you know, going to this kind of an event or obviously like being subscribers of the magazine or all these things and are now, you know, coming into our, our Discord channels and having like Q&As and, and so what sessions. what is Discord? Or... We never talked about that. <laughs> Discord, uh, just the, fastest, quickly. <laughs> the, the fastest way to think about that is like, it's just, it's, it's, it's a, decentralized kind of social media platform. So instead of, you know, there, I mean, it obviously is, is in a central kind of hub and in, in unit institution that is Discord, mm-hmm. but it gives you a lot of, you go in and you create like your own servers. And within those servers, you can shape and model the channel into any kind of configuration that you want, right? So you kind of get handed this, this framework and this like this blank canvas. And then it's depending on what kind of channel you're trying to be or what you want to do or how you want to engage, it can look a lot of different ways. So it's just like, it, it's like not a so mini dis- internet. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, it, it does a lot of the things of a lot of other more kind of traditional, like, you know, web two tools, there's audio and video and, you know, text-based channeling, you know, uh, dir- you know, text chats, communication and chat and all of that. The, you know, the biggest, again, difference is, is that like, there's just a lot of, there's a lot more, I would say, flexibility in how each one looks, right? Like going from server to server can look, so different. You go in one mm-hmm. and sometimes it has like eight channels that are very focused and very clear. And it's about just a lot of like typing and chatting and that kind of thing. And then some of the, again, more, you know, savvy media companies or brands that are going into that space or turning it into like a whole reimagining of their digital content and experience. And, you know, you go in, and it feels like a different version of like a magazine or, you know, hosted radio stations or all of these things. Like people are being really, really creative with it. So it, it can really do a lot of things and it's it's still growing a lot. So we'll, we'll see mm-hmm. where it continues to go. But yeah, that's that's kind of Discord in a nutshell. But yeah, all that's to say, like, you know, people are just engaging with us in different ways, different platforms across different products and experiences. And we're really optimistic. You know, we want to we want to super serve 
people who are coming on the journey with us now. And, and, and hopefully, you know, we, we pull through people that have been on the journey. We pick up lots of new people and then, you know, everything yeah. in between. Yeah. So speaking about these experiences, how do you predict PR and marketing to change your industry as the world starts opening back up? Oh, yeah. Well, that's I, I've been saying it for a while. I think like it's tough, right? Going going through like, you know, pandemic and everything. I think what it did and, um, you know, at least specifically to this topic uh, in, a, in a positive way is it it really accelerated a lot of conversations about like what virtual experiences look like or what shared experiences look like from your home. Right. And that mm-hmm. got a lot of us through, you know, the more social of us, like a really tough moment where we couldn't do all the things that we wanted to do. But my my thought and my hope was like, well, this won't go on forever, at least not in this way. And so how do those things interact and what do hybrid events and things like that look like, right? Where, you know, live touring, for example, right? Like that's something that you, yeah, you can tour hundreds of hundreds of cities, but takes a long time. It's cost prohibitive. Like it can be exhausting to move like a small city and a crew around the world and all of these things. I've seen some interesting things already where people will go do, you know, 10 key cities or live dates. And then the last date on a tour is like simulcast to everybody in the world that can't be there, like a reduced price or things. Like, I think like, I think one thing in the sort of like live space and as things open up is that I don't think it's going to go, I don't think like virtual and digital experiences are going away Mm -hmm. by any means. I think they're continuing to grow. I think it's just going to force us to figure out what the next step looks like so that it keeps people as interested as it did when we were sort of like a captive audience. And like a hybrid yeah, but also I still think I don't know if we've fully we certainly haven't any of us have cracked the code fully yet on like what do those hybrid moments look like? Like yeah. what do they do in a way that are like it's actually interesting and actually tells a different story and makes people on both sides feel really engaged with it. I I've seen versions of stuff and it's like it's fine and I I I appreciate the like exploration, but I think there's tons of work to do about like what makes virtual experiences really excited and then how do those actually tie into like being out in the world, which hard to hard to replicate, hard to, to get better yeah. than actually being around actual humans. Well, and that's exciting that we like have all of that to still discover. Yeah, that's the, that's the hope. Plenty plenty to discover out there in the uncharted territories. Indeed, indeed. Well, thank you so so much. This has been so informative. I've been telling all my friends they. I posted at the Playboy party saying something about NFTs and I'm like, you know what about NFTs? Oh my God, teach us. I'm like, um, no, why don't you just listen to my podcast with Jamal? <laughs> I am not an expert in the slightest. He will teach us the way. So this has been extremely informative and I really appreciate your time. And yeah, this has all been just so fascinating and I'm excited to apply this to yeah. my future discoveries. Um, no, yeah, I, I didn't scratch the surface. I I work with a team that is much smarter than me. And if people like actually want to learn, um, I would like our, our Twitter, Playboy NFTs, um, and then our Discord server, um, which is down the rabbit hole. Like there's, an, we have an amazing community manager. She's freaking brilliant. She does like, she literally does like NFT. She teaches people how to set up digital wallets. Oh, she teaches cool. them how to avoid scams. Like if you really want to get in, she and our team are like a really amazing resource. And like, even I've learned so much from her in like the months that she's been on board. So I, I really encourage people to like, to go and dive in because there's, it's a wild space and it's always changing and there's, there's a ton to learn, but God, I could at awesome. least teach a couple basic things, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. So head to Playboy if you want to learn more and then where can our listeners find you? Oh God, no one needs to find me. 
Uh, I, if, you, if you Google his Adweek article, you won't be upset. Uh, <laughs> I uh, let's see. I am at, at DJ Kid Lightning at on Twitter and on Instagram. Back from my from my music days, so that's where people can find me if they want to see dumb pictures of what I'm eating or my random hot takes every now and again. Love it. Well, thank you again, and so good to talk to you. I'm so happy. Yeah, I'm so glad we did this. Absolutely. Behind the Media is a Red Rock Music podcast and is powered by ACAST. I'm your host, Juliana Martins. Our producer is Emma Martins. Our executive producer is Red Yoakum. For more, follow us on Instagram at Behind the Media Podcast. New episodes weekly available wherever you listen to podcasts. Come back next week for another look behind the media.